Hi, my name is William Ryan Brown, and I'm a podcast editor for the Georgetown Public Policy Review. Thanks for joining us today. This podcast segment is titled Leadership and Public Policy, as we take the time to interview experienced public leaders and discuss their leadership styles, influences, and identify their leadership philosophies for leading and managing decisions in our complex world. Today's guest is Mr. Anatole Jenkins, a Georgetown University Politics Spring 2021 Fellow. He most recently served as a national director of states organizing Joe Biden for president, as well as a former national organizing director Kamala Harris for president. Mr. Jenkins has been organizing at the forefront of tough and historic political fights for the span of his career. He took the time to talk with us about leadership and his tips on being an authentic and resilient leader. We hope you enjoy the interview. Good evening, and thanks for taking the time to be with us today on this Leaders of Public Policy segment of the GPPR podcast. First of all, how are you doing? I am good, and I'm very, very happy and excited to be here. Just started snowing here in D.C., and so nice and toasty and, and warm inside, but no complaints. Nice. Excited to be here with you. Nice. Well, first of all, thanks again for coming on. You know, we truly look forward to today's fruitful discussion and look forward to your thoughts on leadership based on your impressive resume and experience. So for starters, can you just kind of describe your early upbringing, your Georgetown fellow experience so far, and how your upbringing has played a role into your leadership and work today? Of course, of course. Well, for starters, I'll just say that in terms of the Georgetown fellowship, it has been great to spend time with students after spending, what, four years just organizing against Donald Trump. I think this is much uh, more more it's good to get a rest and to you know spend some time with folks who who may not be as jaded as some of the politicals that I've been spending a lot of time with and and really spending time with them to talk about what the work that we did in 2020 and how that informs the the road ahead in terms of our both electoral and social justice and social movement fights ahead. In terms of me, you know, I was born and raised in in the Washington D.C. area. I grew up the youngest, the youngest with a big sister who's she's around eight years older than me. So very much, she was like a third parent for me growing up. But also grew up among a, a big family filled with tons of aunts and uncles and cousins on both sides of my family that you know in every way were more like siblings than anything else. They grew up as siblings, and that's sort of very much how. We interacted with each other and, you know, on both sides of my family, there's truly an aspect of it takes a village and that's how we kind of operate, all taking care of one another. I hadn't really thought about this up until now, but probably has played a big role in me becoming an organizer where you have to work together for starters and where collective success matters much more than individual success to your common goal. So based on your impressive bio, you are a 2020 National Director of States Organizing Joe Biden for President, as well as the former National Organizing Director for Kamala Harris for President. Um, pretty big titles. Can you talk about your journey in these avenues and what has been the most rewarding about these awesome opportunities? My journey, it has been a journey. I feel like I am 65 years old sometimes because it's just been organizing back to back nonstop. I became an organizer ultimately because of representation. Seeing myself in politicians for the first time, seeing myself in Barack Obama in 2007 and 2008, 
before that, you know, I wanted to be an architect, but Barack Obama really inspired me and he, you know, opened my eyes to a kind of politics that was about us just as much or more, or more so rather than it was about him. And that was in 2008. And after that, I decided that I wanted to study politics at university and being in DC and from DC, I also was very, very determined to get involved in Barack Obama's world somehow. And via that determination, I was able to land an internship at OFA. And then after that, it was really someone taking a chance on me and giving me an opportunity to work to get the president reelected. The time I sat down with my boss and mentor and said that I wanted to work full time to make sure that the president got reelected. And he gave me some of the best advice that I'd ever received. He said, you can come to Chicago and you, know, you can be my assistant or some senior staffer's assistant, which seems like the cool, sexy thing to do, what everyone thinks a campaign is. Or you can go to Nevada and you can be an organizer and you can learn real leadership skills. So I moved to Nevada. I was the first organizer hired and I haven't looked back since. And since then, I've been back to Nevada organizing many times over. In 2014, I was the field director for the state party. In 2015, I went back there for Hillary Clinton's caucus run. I've worked to take back the majority in the House of Representatives at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, where I was the National GOTV director in 2018. And then there is, there's obviously this cycle where I did a whole host of different positions from leading then-Senator Kamala Harris's organizing program for her run for the presidency to starting a independent expenditure group to do some organizing before the nomination actually closed up and, and, and we started all organizing for, for Joe Biden. And then, you know, on Joe Biden's campaign as the national director of organizing, or rather the national director of states organizing. You know, at every moment where I really had to decide where, where I would hit next, which, you know, next role I would take, it, it really was all based, based off of a couple of things. One, where I felt I could uniquely make a difference and do what someone else can't, whether or not that was true or not, that's sort of my frame of thinking. And second, I've always trusted my gut. Always trusted my gut. It's always proved me right and headed me in the right direction. And it's been such a rewarding journey, the entire journey, but definitely the most rewarding aspect has been the people that I've met along the way. Dear friends, family, mentors, just some of the best people in the world. That's awesome. That's awesome. No, it's great to hear, you know, with people and trusting your gut. I mean, it's you just great, gave some great points there. Love it. I'm, I'm taking notes here, so it's phenomenal. Just kind of with, based on current events, leaders today must be more on ethically sound. I think we've seen a lot of that in the news. I guess my question for you is who is in Anatole Jenkins' circle of trust that provides you that feedback, criticism, and serves as a moral compass to keep you sound and humble as a leader, director, and a public servant? Oh, man. I mean, there is a village of people. I have a whole host of people who I lean on to keep me centered in who I am and what those values are that I believe in as a leader. Many people who I've really just met on this journey that I mentioned above. So there are my friends, really family at this point, who've been on this political journey with me. I think of my dear friend, Alana Mounts, who we were organizers together in 2012 and lived together and really went through both the best of times and the worst of times. And she's someone who, who, who knows how I respond to failure and is someone who, who always reminds me of, of who I am and why I got into this and why I continue to do it. And I think of, there's my dear family mentor, friend, Emmy Ruiz, who taught me so much 
about everything that I know about organizing and leadership. And, and it's really the one who always reminds me to trust my gut. I think of my mentor, Johannes, who gave me that initial advice to actually go to Nevada to become an organizer. He is someone who, you know, often, oftentimes the more glamorous route, right? And there are so many more people, but certainly have to mention just my best friends who I knew outside of politics in my career and who I grew up with and people who are not involved in politics at all, but they are people who crucial in keeping me grounded and keeping me humble and always always making me realize that above all above all this stuff that we do family friends and community are are what's most important no i love it i think you know i have here notes you know it takes a village having family to keep you humble i think is some some great nuggets of wisdom so i appreciate that point so obviously leaders are readers I guess my question to you is what books are you currently reading and what are your go-to books in regards to those wanting to learn more about what you do in regards to the campaign process? I'm not sure that there are, um, I think you just got to get out there and do it. And, you know, anything else would sort of give you a false sense of the intensity, the craziness, the, the beauty, the amazing people that are involved in campaigns, at least on the Democratic side from my experience. But, you know, I would recommend everyone read a biography about the, you know, the great labor activist Cesar Chavez that came out. I think this came out in like 2014. It's called it's called The Crusades of Cesar Chavez, and it's by Miriam Powell. Is that how you say her last name? It's about his life and how he organized, how he led his union, the United Farmers Workers, and how he brought field workers together against fierce, fierce opposition. And there are just a lot of lessons of leadership in his story that are really artfully articulated in that book. Oh, no, that's... And I would say, in addition to that, I just finished reading President Obama's book, A Promised Land, which is long but very interesting. I love it. I love it. Uh, so, no, so as we transition from the, the books, go back to more of the leadership traits. And there are some individuals you've already mentioned that have kind of helped shape who you are today. And most leadership traits can be traced back to mentors who have kind of helped you along this journey, if you will. So who has been one of Anatole Jenkins' biggest mentors and how have they shaped you to be who you are today? You know, my first day as an organizer, I met Emmy Ruiz, who I mentioned earlier. She is someone who has played a huge, huge role, both in my career, but also my life. She ran Hillary's caucus campaign there in 2016 and is an organizing rock star. She was just named the White House political director. I've worked with her for more than a decade now and have learned more about leadership from her than, than really anyone else. She is everything you need in a leader, someone who invests in the development of those around her, someone who forces people to be their best self, someone, someone who is authentic in her own leadership and doesn't pretend to be anything she isn't, and someone who also doesn't stop leading. The thing with campaigns and electoral politics ultimately is you're constantly getting a new job, which means you are constantly getting a new boss. You don't have too many bosses for too long, but she's someone who continues to lead and support, support those even after a job is done, even after election day has ended. I've learned, you know, I've learned so much from her, but I particularly highlight what I've learned from her in terms of leadership in times of crisis and failure, right? And what does leadership look like when you've lost an election? What does leadership look like when Donald Trump has just gotten elected president? What does leadership look like when your candidate is dropped out of out of a primary race, right? Well, the truth is, first and foremost, a leader just has to show up. 
the rest you'll kind of figure out. The rest you'll kind of figure out. But the first thing you got to do is you just got to show up and, and leaders lead and don't stop leading. And that's a core characteristic of them. I love it. I love it. The three points just from that alone, just leaders having authenticity. I think that's so crucial today. Leading in times of crisis. I mean, I think we've seen that over history. So I think that's a huge part. And then your, your final point about just leaders showing up, just showing up and being present. I think that has such a great role as a leader. So phenomenal. I love it. I love it. So they say adversity makes leaders better. So what adversity, if any, did you have while going through some of these things, whether it was progressing as a director for both President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris's campaign? And what did these, alongside other instances, teach you about yourself? Well, let me tell you, organizing is filled with failure. <laughs> probably, probably 75, if not more percent failure, and really just kind of throwing spaghetti at a wall to see what sticks. So there's there's the small, simple adversities and failures, rather like as an organizer, not hitting your goals for how many voters you need to talk to within the span of a week, or not hitting your goals for how many voters you need to register in the span of a week, which that's something that you can fail as an organizer. That's something that at a much larger perspective you could fail at as a, as a national organizing director. And as an organizer, hitting your goals, right, that's your number one priority. When you don't hit those goals, it just, it, it feels terrible. I remember my first time not hitting a goal. You can correlate that to anything like, you know, missing a deadline, right? In those moments, you learn really more than anything how you respond to failure. And really you have, in times of failure, in times like that, you have no choice but to just get up and keep going. But you learn truly what it takes for you to get up and get back up and get going. And you learn what self-accountability is, because in order for you to get up and get going, you have to take accountability, which is so crucial and important for any leader. So those are small adversities, small failures. Then there are adversities, as I've kind of mentioned before, like losing. I've done that a couple of times. I've had the 2014 midterm elections, which were not great for us. I had the 2016 election, obviously. I had that essentially happened when Vice President Harris suspended her presidential campaign. In those situations, in those, in, in those circumstances, I've learned a few things. One, as I mentioned before when talking about Emmy, we have to show up. As a leader, you have to show up in good times, but most importantly, you have to show up in bad times. This is something that I've learned through the experience of losing a campaign because I've had leaders who didn't show up in the face of that kind of adversity for me, who left me hanging. And that feels terrible. So you have to show up for your team and you you also learn and figure out how you want to show up to support them as well, which, which, which is just as, just as important. And the second thing I've learned is that you... I think this is a, a common trend that I'm saying, but you you kind of just got to keep going and can't indulge too much in self-pity. You can't indulge too much in self-pity because life moves on and it won't wait for you. And there are there are so many people in the world who are working so much harder than we're working in politics for much less money for something that they don't believe in. Something Vice President Harris actually said on the night, there's a video um, of this, folks can Google it, of the, uh, on the night of the 2016 election, which was kind of a pretty odd time or night for her because she had won her election, but obviously Hillary had lost hers. So she basically says, we have two choices when people are about to be bullied or attacked. We can either retreat or we can fight. And I say we fight. That's something that in doing this work that we do, I always keep in the back of my mind. 
Oh, no, that's phenomenal. I like the point you talk about just responding to failure. I think sometimes when adversity hits us, we got to do, like you said, dust yourself off and keep going. And then just a sense of personal accountability, I think is huge. So great points as well there. So we're currently at Georgetown, which is in the heart of D.C. in the mecca of politics and policymaking. So what changes have you seen in policymaking in regards to campaigning and winning the hearts and minds of voters? You know, two, I think two or, or, or three, however many I end up listening, I'm up to the biggest changes that I've seen on the campaign side of things. One is how we reach voters. When I first got involved and started organizing back in 2011, a phone call was the gold standard type of voter contact, and people picked up the phone about 15, 20% of the time. Now that's down to one to 3% of the time, which means that there's just a whole host of tools that are now the norm that help us sort of get over that hurdle. And there are also just a lot more ways for you to actually reach voters, right? There's text messaging, which was not a thing at all in 20, in 2012 when I first started. There's social media, which there are real actual ways to have real honest, good conversation with voters individually via social media with some of the tools that we're investing in currently. So one, the way that we actually reach voters. Two, there are so many more ways that people can cast their ballot that did not exist at all or were not a part of our strategic imperatives for winning prior to prior to, you know, the past eight to 10 years. You have early voting, you have vote by mail, you have even in the Democratic primary, you have virtual caucuses. And with that comes the need for a lot more education so that those voters understand their options and their choices for voting. But thinking back to 2012, early voting was only available in a minority of states. And I don't even remember ever hearing the term vote by mail in the state of Nevada. So that's been a drastic change. And then I think lastly, I would say, but honestly, most importantly, is that it's more accessible to get involved than ever. In years past, in cycles past, in order for you to get involved in a campaign to elect someone you believed in, let's say it, running for president, if you didn't live in a battleground state, there probably wasn't even a, an office for you to go to to actually get involved. And then there wasn't much of a way to actually get involved. You look at now and you literally can just go to your favorite candidate's website. There's probably a way for you to sign up and start taking action right now, today. And that's on the electoral side. But if you look at the issue side of organizing, I mean, let's say I am living in Kentucky, for example, and I care about reproductive rights. There's probably not a Planned Parenthood office near me anywhere for me to get involved. So how do you get involved versus now? I can go to Planned Parenthood's website and I'm sure that there are a whole host of grassroots events and virtual events that I can sign up for that allow for me to take action right here and right now. You know, if folks are out there looking for ways to get involved, find a candidate, go to their website, and it will point you in the right direction. No, that's perfect. And I think you're so right with social media nowadays. It's so accessible. You can go to whatever interests and candidates that you're interested in at, at a click of a button, whether Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the whole nine. So I think that's just crazy to see how technology has evolved over time. So great stuff. So one topic that's been discussed very heavily in regards to leadership is presidential leadership. And as the National Director of States Organizer for Joe Biden for President, as well as your work with Vice President Kamala Harris, what leadership traits stood out to you from President Biden during your interactions with him and Vice President Harris and how, based on those interactions, they will benefit America in the next four years from your opinion? I'm not sure if there are any that I would, that I could really pinpoint out just from this cycle in and of itself. But the best leaders 
surround themselves with experts and listen to experts, people who are smarter than them in particular subjects or topics. And, you know, this isn't something that was particularly or necessarily so pronounced during the campaign, but for both President Biden and Vice President Harris, you can see how they've led in elected offices beforehand and the people who they've surrounded themselves with and listened to. And ultimately what that means in terms of process, normal process and not making decisions unilaterally. And in a return to process ultimately truly means a return to informed decision-making, right? That's guided by experts. And so I'm really glad for us to return back to, to that norm. In addition to that, you know, I would say the best leaders see the bigger picture in the how we do our work and see that that is just as important as the work that we're doing, if that makes sense. This is something I highlight because it's really the way that Vice President Harris ran her campaign for president. She recognized the historic nature of what we were doing, what we were trying to do, but just as important as what we were doing to her was how we went about it. I remember the first time talking to Vice President Harris about how we were gonna organize her campaign to win the nomination. And she listened, she listened and she heard everything that I had to say. And then she said, all that's good and well, Anatol, but how are we planting seeds? And that's something that she that she constantly asked throughout that campaign, or how are we planting seeds and going about this campaign and organizing in a way that uplifted others and invested in the next generation of leaders. I love it. I love it. One thing I have here circled is experts. I think sometimes as a leader, it's good to be surrounded by subject matter experts that know different areas and they can help you as a leader see the bigger picture. So I thought that was great. And then just kind of planting seeds in the future. So I thought that was phenomenal. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it, it, going back to experts, it's in particularly us just in contrast to the, the past administration. It's important to know that you're not an expert in everything. No one is. No one's an expert in, in, in anything. And we can't do any of this work that we're trying, these really, really big things that we're trying to do. You can't do it alone. You got to do it with people. And you got to do it with experts. And you got to, you know, make informed decisions based off of the best information that you have, which you can only get via having the best people around you. No, I agree, because you can't do it alone. And what you mentioned, when you have these subject matter experts, they can help you make those informed decisions to make what's best for the group as a whole. So no, I think that that's clutch. So as we transition from talking about presidential leadership, there's been much discussion on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And serving on campaigns for leaders who stress diversity, such as Vice President Kamala Harris and President Joe Biden, based on your observations and experience, how do leaders foster a climate of inclusion where everyone is treated with dignity, respect, and judged by their character and performance? That's a very, very good question. There are a lot of different ways that you can tackle this. And I don't think that anyone has a, has a complete list, right? But there are a couple things that, that are important. One is you have to create space. You have to create space for folks to be themselves and be amongst others who look and are culturally like them. It is okay for us to have differences and for us to go with our quote unquote clan and spend some time there recentering ourselves with people who, you know, come from the same culture as us. That's important. And so you have to be able to create that space and create time for folks to actually be able to do that fellowship. Second, you have to provide real opportunity and not have diversity simply for the sake of diversity, but recognizing the importance of diversity, which what does that mean? It doesn't mean just, you know, checking a box and having people on your staff because they 
meet a quota. It means having people in your staff because they actually have different life experiences and an opinion that, that matters and not putting them in a box to only do those black people only do black outreach or those Latino people only do Latino outreach, but recognizing that they're truly a part of the fabric of the country and can actually do anything. And so providing real opportunity. And in addition to like providing that real opportunity, you have to have diverse leaders who bring again, different life experiences because one that just makes your campaign your the work that you're trying to do better your strategy whatever it may be better but second is because it's important for people to see themselves in leaders i mean i mentioned earlier how that is how i was inspired to get involved in politics and so having diverse leaders actually will inspire people to one of one be a part of your campaign two feel comfortable in your campaign and three that just will trickle down into having people having those real opportunities, having people feel comfortable, having those spaces provided for them to actually go um, in fellowship. And, 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 you know, in terms of like creating those spaces, that's so crucially important. I, I think about this past 2020 election cycle where, I mean, there are so many times where we just needed that space for black people, honestly, right? You think of the summer where there was just social uprest. That also goes back to my point of just showing up can you imagine having leaders who maybe aren't black or whatever color, but aren't maybe comfortable just bringing it up? The fact that this stuff is happening. You're a person of color and you have to sit in a meeting where someone's not acknowledging. Acknowledgement matters so much and sometimes creating that space and having that space allows that to, to, to foster a lot easier. No, I think that's great, especially what you mentioned about acknowledgement and then creating space to be themselves. The one point that you hit on as well, I think with, when you think of diversity, equity, inclusion, you can't just check the block. Hey, I have this diversity officer, we're, we're good. But actually it, taking the time to invest, create the space to be themselves and acknowledge that. So I think that's, that is huge. And, it, and, and I would also, it's not easy oftentimes, right? It is not easy in many spaces to have the most diverse staff, that doesn't mean you don't do it because you have to recognize the benefit of it. And it takes investment. It takes investment from a resource standpoint. It takes investment from a people's time perspective. It's hard work, but it's hard work that's worth it. No, definitely, definitely. But no, you've given me some great nuggets. I think I'm on page five of notes. I mean, I've, I've really appreciated this discussion. So one of my last questions is, what is, first of all, what is your leadership philosophy and what are your key takeaways for young leaders who are listening to this to be successful like yourself in the future? Yeah, I would say that my leadership philosophy, one, it, 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 it evolves, right? I'm learning and growing every day, like we all are. But if I were to answer that today, I would say that my leadership philosophy is that it takes a village and that leaders never stop leading. Everyone needs a village to be successful and no one gets to a place of success alone. No one stays at a place of success alone. It's a recipe for disaster. And, it, and it's our duty to take care of those in our village. So find a village, create a village, take those who you meet on your journey with you and don't stop leading ever. Don't indulge in too much self-pity. Trust your gut. It's usually right. Be a nice person. But ultimately it takes a village and, and don't stop leading because true leaders don't. I love it. I love it. I like the part. I mean, if there's anything I take away from just our discussion from the beginning in and now is as leaders, it takes a village. It takes a village of people around you. And I think that's definitely one point I'll definitely walk away from. But once again, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. I think this has been a great talk. Thanks for what you're doing for joining us today. Just kind of as we close, do you have any closing remarks or anything for the, the audience? 
you know, closing remarks, I would hearken back to something that Vice President Harris says all the time, and it's you don't need permission to lead. Just lead. Just do it. Just go and do it. You see a problem that needs fixing, fix it. You see an area in a place where that needs some leadership, fill that void. You don't need permission to, to, to get going and to go and to be a leader. And it doesn't, leaders don't come in one box or shape or form, be your authentic self, but don't wait for someone to put you in a position to be a leader. You should just go and start leading. And I'm excited to see, continue to see a new generation of leaders really taking the, taking the helm and making this country even better. for listening to the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. If interested to know more about Mr. Anatole Jenkins, you can follow him on social media at his Twitter handle, at Anatole Jenkins, or virtually sit in on one of his GU Politics discussion group sessions titled, Organizing in 2020, Lessons Learned for the Road Ahead, which details can be found on the GU Politics website at politics.georgetown.edu. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and check out more from the Georgetown Public Policy Review at gppreview.com. Thanks again. And remember, humility matters, excellence matters, and great leadership matters. Take care.